the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But unto the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicated this, that the that the way into the holy, holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices offered, which cannot make him who performed the services service perfect in regard to the conscience concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as a high priest of good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not concerning, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption for the blood of gold, for the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sacrifices for purifying of the flesh how much more shall the blood of Christ who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of, in, of the new covenant by means for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive and promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also be of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while a testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, 
which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. You may be seated. I want to invite you this morning to come and and worship the Lord as we begin. Uh, This has been, some of you may be wondering, why are we beginning this way? Uh, Probably, truth be told, uh, it's something that that have just been in a a habit of of doing of late. And uh, I feel like before the word is preached, it's important for me uh, and and invite you to come as well to just uh, kneel before the Lord. And go to him in prayer. So if you can, you're willing, you're able. If not, you can remain right where you're at. And uh, we'll, we'll go to the Lord and we'll, we'll pray this morning. Father, we have come because, Lord, you've called us to come. You've invited us. To worship and to bow down. To kneel before you our maker. You are the great shepherd, the rock of all ages. Almighty God is your name. We see elsewhere in the scripture that you are known as Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. And Father, we thank you for who you are. And Father, just now we submit ourselves to you asking that you would break down any barriers that might exist in this place today where we have built a barrier in our lives, Lord. I pray that you would reveal that to us with the goal that we might repent and turn to you in faith. And I pray that we all in Christ come to know and enjoy the access that we have by grace through your Son. We thank you, Father, for the freedom that we now have in Jesus. And we thank you for receiving us, rescuing us, redeeming us. There truly is power in the blood of the spotless Lamb of Jesus. And Father, we thank you for seeing that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. As we just heard the scripture read, without blood there is no remission of sin. And so Father, we're grateful for the cleansing power of your blood. Father, we ask your word would go forth with with power and strength this morning. And I pray your Holy Spirit would speak through me. I pray your spirit would teach each one here the truths that you would have them to know from your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout history, there are recorded significant dates and markers and milestones, times when someone or a group of people did something 
to capture the attention or cause a stir. And, and oftentimes, these are deemed firsts in a particular field. I was doing some, some uh, searching uh, this week, um, coming across the, the first hot air balloon ride. Uh, the, the first uh, plane to break the sound barrier. Uh, the first locomotive steam engine. The first automobile. I came across an interesting individual. Some of you maybe have heard of his name. His name's Roger Bannister. As I was reading a, a, a History Channel article online about Roger Bannister, I found out that his parents couldn't afford to send him to school back in the late 1940s. And so, literally, Roger decided to run his way in. He received a track scholarship from Oxford in London. And he would go on to study neurology while excelling in track and field. He turned down the opportunity to run in the 1948 London Olympics. Four years later, in Helsinki, he ran, finishing fourth in the mile run, much to the chagrin of the British press. This was their man who was going to win, so they thought. Not only did he postpone the 48 Olympics, but now in 52 he gets a disappointing fourth place. Fast forward two years in his life, 1954. Roger is now enrolled at St. Mary's Medical School and he receives, at this point, he's resolving to, to break what, for many at this time, deemed track's most impossible barrier. Breaking the four-minute mile. Four minutes, a mile. Just to give you some perspective, many of you have seen a track. Pendleton has a track. And a mile would be four times around that track. Okay? Give you a little perspective. That's a mile. Four laps around that track. And track and field, this was deemed the impossible. For a human being to break four minutes... In a mile run, well, that barrier came down on May 6, 1954. At the Ifley Road track in Oxford, England, as Roger Bannister crossed the finish line in record fashion, 3 minutes, 59 seconds, point four. The barrier had been broken. What was once thought impossible became a reality. Roger Bannister became the first to break the four-minute barrier in the mile run. Now, maybe you're here today and you're dealing with a barrier of your own. Or maybe there are barriers that you're dealing with. You know this particular barrier exists, but to this point you've not been able to break the barrier in any way or perhaps you've made little progress. Maybe this morning you come from a line of broken marriages and you know the record of marriages in your family and no one in your line on either side perhaps has stayed married in your family for generations perhaps very few have stayed married or maybe even those who have remained married have been marred by sin in some way and your heart's desire is to break the barrier that's existed for generations to show 
first and foremost to the Lord, your loyalty and love to him, but also to the generations behind, that a godly marriage is not impossible. Maybe you've stared a barrier in the face for so long that you've come to accept it as the norm. You don't like the place that you're in, but you don't see any way out on your own. Side note, that's part of the problem, that phrase, on your own. When we try and do this on our own, what we oftentimes find is that not only do we not get out from the barrier, but we find we oftentimes are digging ourselves deeper behind it. But for some, you concede that things maybe won't get any better. That the barrier in front of you is going to remain indefinitely. Think about what that cultivates in your life. Hopelessness, bitterness, despair. We look at Hebrews 9 this morning. I believe what we have here in the first part of Hebrews 9 is a description of a barrier broken down. In fact, whether you're here today in Christ or you're still exploring what Christ and his death on the cross has to do with you, the barrier that's being described in the text applies greatly to your situation. How so? I stand here before you this morning under the assumption that everyone, including myself, everyone here deals with sin. There's not a one of us here that doesn't have to deal with that. Daily in word, thought, deed, motive, we are doing something, it seems, that is contrary to God's word. If we're not doing something contrary to God's word, then perhaps in word, thought, deed, motive, we are not doing something that he has called us to be doing from his word. Sin which came on the scene through one man, Adam, brought death. And death spread to all men because all sinned. Those are the words of Paul through the Spirit in Romans 5, 12 and following. Sin is a barrier that serves as the separator between us and God. So we have a sinful man on one end and a holy Sinless God. How is it that a holy God would want anything to do with sinful man? And how is it that sinful man can have access to a holy God? How does he gain entry to the throne of grace to obtain help in his time of need? Hebrews 4.16 Well, in order for access and entry to occur, something must be done about sin, correct? Something must be done about sin. So if you look at your Bible with me, how many of you have your Bibles with you? If you have the, uh, the paper version, it will probably be a more of an effective illustration this morning. But if you don't have a paper version of your Bible, that's okay too. You'll get the idea. But if you begin with me in your Bible and you just turn to the first page of Genesis, okay? Go ahead. If you've got a Bible, turn to the first page of Genesis, 
and the first page of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. In my Bible, chapters 1 and 2 is really um, one and a half pages. Now, I want you to know something that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what we have here is a time when there was no barrier. We've got perfect fellowship here in the beginning. No barrier existed. The Garden of Eden. Perfect fellowship with God exists. On the first page. Now, it doesn't take long because when we turn the page and we get to that big number three in Genesis, that's where sin comes on the scene. Sin comes on the scene. Now, if you hold your finger there in Genesis chapter three, And you go all the way to the end of Malachi. All the way, Malachi, by the way, is the last book of the Old Testament. Okay? But as 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 you're able to see, if you look up here for just a moment, I've got one page. That was no barrier. I've got all these pages right here, which comprises pretty much all of the Old Testament. All of these pages, 600 plus pages. And these are the pages where the barrier exists. Sin enters the world. Perfect fellowship no longer exists because of sin. And from Genesis 3 through the end of Malachi, sin remains a barrier. Now, praise God, we're not done. Because we keep going. And if you would, just kind of earmark our partition. um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for a moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason I I pull all four of them, those are, by the way, called the what? The Gospels, right? They're called the Gospels. And in the Gospels, the Gospels tell us specifically about Jesus. Jesus arrives on the scene, and all four Gospel writers, by the end of the Gospel, they tell us that Jesus, what? Died. All four of them. Tell us that he died. And so what we have here is a time, a very slim time, when there is no barrier. A large chunk of what we have in this old covenant, this first testament, barrier exists. The gospels, we get to the gospels and we see that this barrier is demolished. How so? Through the cross. Through the death of Jesus. And then we have Acts. Through almost to the end of Revelation. I would say up to about chapter 20 or so. It's a decent part of scripture. And it's in this section of the scripture. Where the barrier of sin we need to understand. Is still broken down. But seems to be still cherished in the heart. There's this desire. James talks about how sin happens. Enticed. Desires of the heart. Acts through Revelation, a portion of that Revelation book, speaks to living as a new creation in Christ, under the new covenant. Learning what it is to live life dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, in a context or a world that largely opposes Jesus 
and sort of kind of just thumbs their nose at sin, embraces it, in fact. Well, those last two chapters, Revelation 21, 22, we see a return to almost that first page of Scripture in some regard. This restoration of perfect fellowship. You've got a little glimpse of it at the beginning, and you've got a little glimpse of it at the end. That's where it's headed. But where are we right now? We're in what's called the church age. The Holy Spirit has already come down in Acts 2, and we await now the return of our Lord. We are right now in the midst of learning how to live as a new creation in Christ, understanding that the sin barrier has been demolished, and yet we are caught, it seems, still with these earthen tents. Sin is still a possibility. And we're learning how to live in that tension, if you will, of what Christ has done and now who we are in Christ under the new covenant through his blood. I wanted to give you that picture to help you see. I hope what you noticed is that there's a lot of scripture here that's lived out under the framework of a barrier in existence. But it is glorious as I look at that and I I just do that exercise myself. It's glorious to be reminded that we one day won't have to be concerned about this barrier of sin. The Bible says in Revelation 21 that there's not going to be any more crying. Not not giving me more crying. Did you hear that back there? No more crying. No more tears. No more pain. No more sorrow. The old order of things is passing. We're not there yet, but that's where it's going. That ought to provide us hope. For most of what we know is the Old Testament, the barrier that existed. It existed in glaring fashion. But Hebrews has been talking about a new covenant, a new agreement, different from the first one. Remember that? We talked about that last week. I want you to remember the main recipients of this letter in Hebrews. They had been accustomed to worshiping God a particular way. And we can turn back into the Old Testament and even here in Hebrews. And we see that the barrier confronting those locked up in this Levitical sacrificial system. Those wavering on whether to abandon, cut ties with the Levitical system or move forward with Jesus and the new covenant. We need to understand that the barrier was very real for them. We may look at it and we we see oftentimes the folly of pursuing such a course. They were living in it. They didn't see the things that we oftentimes see, now some 2,000 years removed. It's amazing how time brings a different perspective. I think many of you here readily agree that Christ's death broke the barrier of sin once for all. And we all together would say praise the Lord for that. His death broke the barrier of sin. But just as the first covenant addressed the exterior, the outward, the what to do's and the what not to do's, the new covenant, as we saw last week, was addressed to the heart and to the mind. And it involved the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. It included the actual forgiveness of sins. 
So in one sense, the barrier of sin is demolished when you see Christ in those gospel accounts yield up his spirit and breathe his last. He paid for your sin in his flesh by means of his blood of the new covenant. And yet I believe as we look at Hebrews 9, it's showing here another dimension of the barrier. A dimension, I believe, that affects each one of us. It deals with our living out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a new creation in Christ, living in the midst of the new covenant. And some of you might be thinking, what are you talking about, Steve? Jesus paid it all. It's, it's over and done with. The barrier's been broken. And I would say, yes, absolutely, it has been paid, all of it. But the text points to the conscience. Tell me, can you see someone's conscience? You can't. And so that means it's inside. It's not going to be visible from the outside. What we read here in the first 15 verses of Hebrews 9 speaks to the conscience. It looks to the inside of the man. See, during the first covenant, there's a lot of external stuff going on, isn't there? Lots of ceremonial cleansings, animal sacrifices, and not much of anything that affected the conscience of the worshiper, the interior. And in contrast, you have the new covenant. And once Christ comes on the scene with the blood of the new covenant, you see the barrier that at once had solely affected the exterior, now begin its good work on the interior. A guilty conscience is transformed into a cleansed conscience. The necessity of the inward work didn't get done until the arrival of the new covenant through Jesus' sacrificial one-time death on the cross. As I look at Hebrews 9, I believe that's one of the central ideas of the passage. Is that the death of Jesus breaks the barrier of a guilty conscience once for all. The death of Jesus breaks the barrier. Not, not big picture of sin. But I'm talking here the barrier of a guilty conscience. What Christ did at the cross broke that barrier too. Which is wonderful news. And so the question then maybe comes as we look at the text, how does Jesus' death effectively break the barrier of the guilty conscience? How can I exchange, another way to ask the question maybe, how do I exchange the guilty conscience for a cleansed conscience? What's that look like? And I think today in part we'll answer that question. I believe that next week and maybe the week after as we continue in chapter 9 and into chapter 10, this theme, this subject matter is going to continue to come to the surface so we're not going to exhaustively cover it today, but we're going to at least dive into it today. I believe the text here in the first 15 verses divided into two sections. 1 through 10, 11 through 15. Where we're basically going to be seeing this earthly sanctuary and this heavenly sanctuary. We'll see in the first part... Uh, this barrier defined, I'm, I'm just going to talk about, and I think the scripture gives us some definition on what this was about. How they went about their worship in this earthly sanctuary. 
And then we see in verses 11 through 15, this barrier is going to be demolished. In fact, there's going to be another kind of sanctuary, another of a different kind. The first part of the chapter describes the earthly tent called the sanctuary. The second part describes the tent not made with hands, which is in the heavenlies. The first part gives definition to the contents within the earthly sanctuary. The second part shows the contrast comparing earthly and temporary with heavenly and eternal. The first part describes the woeful limitations, severe limitations of the earthly sanctuary. The second part reveals what the earthly sanctuary pointed to. The unlimited riches in Christ, in the heavenlies. I want you to see from the text that Christ's death breaks the barrier of a guilty conscience once for all. And we look at the text, and I'd like you to notice just up front the word conscience. It's found in verse 9, and it's also found in verse 14. I'd like you just to note that. It's in there twice. The first instance, it pertains to the guilty conscience. And the latter, it's in there referring to the cleansed conscience. And while I would venture to say that a majority of you here believe the barrier of sin was, was broken at the cross, I don't think there's dispute here. I don't sense there's probably dispute on that issue in this place. I would also submit that many here still deal with a barrier. And it interestingly enough deals directly with your sin that was broken back at the cross. Let me explain. You see, when I define barrier in verses 1 through 10, I'm not defining the barrier in terms of just this general sin or or the all-encompassing sin. I'm zooming in in an effort to look at this guilty conscience that for so long had been in place. I showed you how long (laughs) the barrier existed. But my hope is to take you a bit closer to the heart of the problem of both the, the heart of the worshiper in the first century, but also your own heart today. If Christ's death on the cross sufficiently broke the barrier of sin in my life, why then should I be so concerned about a guilty conscience now, some might say? When he broke the barrier of sin, did he not also transform my guilty conscience into a cleansed conscience? And yet how many followers of Jesus still carry around with them the remnants of the guilty conscience? Let me ask you, are there any signs in your life of a guilty conscience? Let me ask you a a, a question pertaining to that. Are there any signs as a follower of Jesus of a guilty conscience evident in your life? Christopher Ashe, in his book, Discovering the Joy of a Clear Conscience, I'd highly recommend it. I don't typically do this and put forward books and names of folks who write books. This this was very helpful, not only pertaining to the text this week, but helpful in terms of understanding 
the role of conscience in our life as a believer. And, and the idea of discovering the joy of a clear conscience. A clean, cleansed conscience. He gives in here, I believe, helpful biblical insight into the subject of conscience. And you know, when we have a guilty conscience, we typically take some steps to ease the pain. Maybe we don't see it that way, but that's oftentimes what we do. I'd like you to see if you can identify any of these approaches to a guilty conscience. I'd like to give you just a few that he mentions here. Maybe you can resonate with a few of these. The first of which is moral effort. Moral effort. How do we try to get around the difficulty of of this guilty conscience? Well, some of us just try a little bit harder. We just try a little bit harder, thinking that if we just try a little bit harder to be good, things are going to be all right. This guilty conscience that I've got is going to be changed. If I just try a little bit harder. Then there's escapism. It's what he calls escapism. And the example that we have in the scripture is that of Jonah. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Where's Jonah go? Tarshish. At least he tries to, doesn't he? He tries to escape what God had called him to do. He didn't like that. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't perhaps like those people. He didn't feel like those people needed or were worthy of receiving God's word. But you know, as we think about Jonah's example, and and interestingly enough, you know, God gives him the rope to be able to get on the boat. He, he, He gets to the point even of putting to sleep his conscience. Remember, he's sleeping on the boat. He's run away from God and he's able at the bottom of the boat to fall asleep. Isn't that interesting? He's trying to escape it all. Did you know there are other things in our life that we also do to try and escape this guilty feeling of a guilty conscience? For some of us, it's food. We go find some food. It's an escape. Think about an escape. I just want to get away from it. I'm feeling guilty because of something in my life that I know. And by the way, that's one of the things our conscience does for us. God's given to us a conscience, by and large, to point us in a right direction. But listen, the Bible also says that over time, if we don't respond accordingly to that conscience, if we don't respond, it can turn into a seared conscience. It can become desensitized. Well, some of us can escape with food, and we just go in and we just eat food, and food's somehow, someway going to be our big escape. Some of us, it's, it's spending. We'll, we'll spend money, and that's our escape. As long as I got some money, I'm going to go out, I'm going to do something, I'm going to spend some money, I'm going to buy something, and that's going to be my escape from the real problem that I have here, this real guilt that I'm feeling. Some of us maybe escape by playing video games. And I'm not just talking to young people, because older people are just as guilty of this one. Some of us escape by putting a movie in the DVD player, watching a movie, going to the theater, playing all the sundry fantasy games that are out there. That's the escape. 
Social media. You can create all kinds of people and images that you want to be. You can escape from who you are online. You can create yourself however you want yourself to be. Isn't that interesting? What about blaming others? Blaming others. He says that he and his, his family are fans of the Calvin and Hobbes cartoons, which feature the boy Calvin and his pet tiger Hobbes. And he says, one of my favorites is a strip in which Calvin says, nothing I do is my fault. My family is dysfunctional. My parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibility for my actions. And at this point, Hobbes says, one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. And Calvin signs off with the words, I love the culture of victimhood. Hey, listen, blaming others. You see, he goes on, he says, conscience tells me that it's my fault. But if I can persuade myself it's someone else's fault, then I can neatly shift the blame and get away from the voice of conscience. See, this is the great evasion, he says, of the so-called victim culture, where we are all victims and no one is responsible anymore. How else do we escape, get away from this guilty conscience? Gradually desensitizing the conscience. We talked about that in 2 Timothy 4. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of that as well. We can go so far as to reject the Bible because, you know, if you, if you just reject the Bible, then, you know, you don't have to worry about living up to these standards of truths. Some folks do that. What about self-righteousness? The Pharisees in the scriptures are an example set forth here of self-righteousness. We've got it all under control. We know exactly what needs to happen. Or what about persuading myself that godliness is an external thing where it becomes a list of things to do and not matter of the heart? What we have in the text before us, these two parts, and I'd like to just briefly go through these two parts. I believe it's real simply put. I, I want to try and make it as simple as I can because some of you, I know you read the text and you go, what is he going to talk about today? All these parts of the tabernacle and this all happened so long ago and we don't do this anymore today. I know that's what some of you are probably thinking. You didn't tell anybody, but you're probably thinking that. So, for simplicity's sake, what I'd like to do is just break this down into two parts, okay? In verses 1 through 10, 11 through 15. And in the first part, what we see, in each part, we're going to talk about the tent, we're going to talk about sacrifice, and we're going to talk about results. Really, that's the bottom line here as we talk about this earthly sanctuary. The earthly sanctuary was, was divvied up into essentially two parts. You had your outer court and you had your inner court. Outer and inner Okay, we'll keep this real simple and basic so we can understand. That's where he begins. He's wanting everybody to understand at the beginning, if you look at chapter 9, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. 
the sanctuary was, was here on earth. He's describing a, a very real, tangible sanctuary that priests and high priests walked into. Everybody got that? Okay? And so they would walk in, and he says, this tabernacle was prepared. This tabernacle was prepared, and it gives us some parts. The first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So you had the first part of this sanctuary, the, the lampstand, which was always lit, right? Had these seven candles burning from it, the menorah. Some of us have maybe seen a, a picture and description of it. I'm not going to go into the details of all these things, but you had a table set up and you had showbread. You had bread, fresh bread, always had bread. So you always had bread. You always had candles that were being lit. You always had a fire that was, was going on for the altar and the sacrifices. That ought to tell us something in and of itself. The need to have all those things all the time. It's pointing us to something. See, everything in the tabernacle was pointing us to something that was yet to come. In fact, the Bible says exactly that here as we keep going in the text. All right, so verse 3 then, behind the second veil. Now, uh, depending on which translation you read, and, and you go back and you can read Exodus and you can read Leviticus, and Exodus gives us the pattern of how this tabernacle was constructed. And we see that there was a screen uh, right at the entrance of the first court, and there was a veil that was between the first court and the inner court, which we know as the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, right? And so verse 3 is talking about the second veil. So what's behind that curtain that leads to where the Ark of the Covenant is. And you know, I was, I was thinking about having this big giant curtain. And I, my imagination was running wild with how to do this. But yeah, actually we got a stage. There's a curtain up there. That might be, actually be a good, good rendering. But, and some of us think about this, this giant curtain. And, and think about yourself as a priest. <clears throat> and when it's your turn to come in. You know, when you were called to come in, you were assigned duty to come in as a priest and to do your job. Well, you come in and you do your job in that part of the sanctuary. And all the while, there's this curtain. And day in and day out, you're doing your job and there's this curtain. And this curtain, you can't go in. It served as a barrier. In fact, what's interesting is that the outer court... The outer court, those who were making their way in and out of that outer court, that outer court is a symbol for us of the barrier that really did exist. You see, because they were able to see with their eyes that big veil. And they didn't dare go behind that veil. In part, perhaps, one of the reasons why today, why we don't venture to do some things that perhaps maybe we should, but we have this thing called a guilty conscience. See, listen, here's where a guilty conscience comes into play. And for so long, this had been the case. Not only had there been a barrier that had existed, but there's this guilty conscience that's also for so long had existed. And if you have a guilty conscience, I want you to think about this. Are you going to go in behind that curtain knowing who and what that represents behind that curtain? Because you see what's behind the curtain and what the ark then represented was the very presence of God, the purity of God himself. Do you remember what Jesus says in John chapter 3 about walking in the light? 
Those who walk in darkness, they don't want to walk in the light, do they? Why? Lest their deeds be exposed. You see, when you've got a guilty conscience, you're not going to want anything to do with what's behind that curtain. You don't want anything. You don't want anything to do with that. But I want to let you know that Christ's death broke the barrier not only of sin, big picture, but Christ's death also broke the barrier of any guilty conscience that any of us should have. He broke the power, the guilt, the penalty, all that of sin is is demolished at the cross. So, I digressed. Verse 3. Now he's going to tell us in verse 4 what's in or behind that veil, that that curtain in the holiest of holies. Had a golden censer, ark of the covenant. That was a pretty significant part of that, wasn't it? The ark of the covenant represented the very presence of God. Think about it. All these people walking by day after day, the priests that are, they're walking by day after day, so close to the presence of God and yet not able to enter. Now, there's two key words here, prepositions, in and above. There's some things here that the text says are in the ark, okay? The golden pot that had the manna, remember? Back in the day, the manna. They wanted to preserve some of that manna where God fed the people. Also, Aaron's rod that budded. Remember that passage of Scripture? And then the tablets of the covenant are in. And verse 5 then says, above it. What's above the ark? What sits above the ark? It's the mercy, what we know is the mercy seat. That, that covering. And it was at the mercy seat, the covering, where God himself spoke to his people. So above it were the cherubim. Remember the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. We cannot now speak in detail. that's an odd, interesting phrase, isn't it? Of these things, we can't go into detail right now. I just gave you some description, some explanation. They had had a tent, okay? As we think about this, they had a tent, and we think about in verse 6, he's going to go on and talk about these sacrifices, and we're going to see the results. But really, the first several verses just talk about the setup of the tent, how it was structured, how it was laid out, We cannot now speak in detail. I think in part he's getting at and addressing here, we're not going to go into these these deep dive details about this First Testament because the reality is not here in the First Testament. We're not going to spend our wheels talking about this right now because there's something better here that I want to get to. We can't now go into these details. And so he goes to verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle Performing the services. Remember, there were some very divine ordinated services that they were to carry out. God instructed them to carry these things out. And so they would go in to the first part. Verse 7. But the second part, the high priest, the high priest went alone, went by himself. He went once a year, the tenth day, the seventh month. The Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, read all about it. Lots of details. Not going to go into details now. Leviticus 16 is where you can read about it. But that's what happened. 
That was the day, and had, remember, they had the two goats. The one, uh, they had the two goats, you had the bull, remember? And the sacrifice was made first on behalf of the high priest and his family. And then there was a sacrifice made on behalf of the people for their sins, committed in ignorance. And then there was another sacrifice whereby the hands laid on that goat and there was a a, a lucky fellow who got to take the goat out into the wilderness and let that goat go, scapegoat. That was Leviticus 16 in short. And so what we have here in verse 7 is that there's one person who gets to enter behind that curtain, behind that veil. And this one person is the high priest. This one person is alone, the only one gets to go behind that curtain. Now, some of us might say and think that if you're a first century worshiper and you know that that's the deal, that one person gets to go in there, you might think, well, man, I'd like to be able to go in there. I'd like to be able to see what's in there. You could get a little bitter that you don't get a chance to go in there. However, I do believe for the first century person that it provided hope. It provided, it was a picture of hope that One of them got to go in with the idea that one day there's going to be a high priest who goes in and we get to go with him. See, it was a picture. That's what it was. It was a picture. It's a symbol of what was to come. In fact, he goes on. And so we we see that the earthly tents described and we see the sacrifice described. The sacrifice is you know, once a year, and, and we see later in chapter 10 that it's, it's really this once a year was a reminder of one's sins, okay? Look what we get in verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this. Who's indicating this? The Holy Spirit. Not only is the Holy Spirit the co-author of the Scriptures... But the Holy Spirit is involved here, right here in Hebrews 9, helping to interpret what this old way of worship was, was like. He's defining and interpreting what's going on. And so here's what he says. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way, the way, I underline that in the scripture because, you know, I'm also reminded here about the way. Jesus says, I am the way. Doesn't he? I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. And, and the Holy Spirit here is indicating that the way into the holiest, behind that big veil, the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. While the first tabernacle still had its standing. The Spirit's indicating and telling us something. The Spirit is teaching us something here about this Levitical sacrificial system. The way into the holiest was not yet. You know, when you think about not yet, you ask parents. You ask your parents, hey, can we, um, can we go over to Johnny's house? And your dad or mom says, not yet. Now, some of you might know your parents well enough to know that not yet means you ain't never, ever going to Johnny's house today. But for some of you, you might also understand that to be there's still a chance. You know, I think the younger our children, the more they hold out hope. The older they are, the more experienced they are, the more times they, they come and ask dad and mom, and they kind of know what our answers are. And I see mine smiling, and some of yours smiling, so I think that uh, dads and moms, they've got us uh, pegged a little bit on this one too. Not yet. Here, not yet means it hasn't come, but 
You can bank on it. You can be certain it's coming. It just hasn't happened yet. It hasn't manifested itself yet. Look at verse 9. It tells us, there's that word, symbolic. You can underline that, boom. It was symbolic. This, this First Testament way of worship was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot, cannot, not possible, to make him who performed the service perfect, complete, whole, in regard to the conscience. Conscience not being the exterior but the interior, right? You see, the, the conscience of the worshiper wasn't going to get appeased, wasn't going to be satisfied, if you will, settled, resolved, until the arrival of Christ. See, the not yet had to do with Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is writing on the other side of Christ. Timeline, we know this book was written sometime between his death in 33 and 70. 70 was the destruction of the temple. We get the picture that this is, these sacrifices are still happening. So somewhere in that window of time, that's when this writer is writing. The Spirit indicating that the way to the holiest was not yet made manifest. It was symbolic. Symbolic in what way? Verse 10 tells us it was concerned with foods and drinks, various washings, uh, festivals, feasts, all these things that, that represented something. You think about the Christian life and you think about things that symbolize other things. We already this morning drank a cup of juice and had a cracker, didn't we? Those are symbolic of what? Jesus' blood, Jesus' body, right? These rings that we wear are symbols, aren't they? What are they symbols of? Symbols of a covenant that we've made before God to love our wife for better, for worse, right? Symbols abound in the scripture. And so what we have here in this earthly tent, we have sacrifices that are needed to be made over and over on an annual basis. And the results are simply ceremonial cleansing at best. But nothing here, nothing on the inside is affected. Not yet. But then you get two great words that begin verse 11. But Christ. You know, some other places in Scripture we see but God. Here it's but Christ. But Christ. See, what, what couldn't be done... For so long, barrier that existed for so long. Christ. What's it say? He came as high priest of the good things to come or the good things that have been realized. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation, not of things here in this world. So in the second part here, we see a tent. The tent is different than the first tent that was described in chapter 9, wasn't it? This is not an earthly tent. 
Jesus didn't walk inside that curtain of the earthly tent. He walked inside and through the curtain of the heavenly tent. But I want you to notice the sacrifice as well. You see, while the, those in the First Testament, they were having to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and these annual sacrifices were reminders of their sin, this one named Jesus came as high priest with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, and it says, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves. Oh, this, is, this, is, this is wonderful right here for us to get this. But with his own blood... He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Listen, I love what Ash says in his book about this. He says, you would not find back in the first century any animal. There there weren't any uh, goats or bulls intelligent or smart enough to do this. To volunteer themselves to be sacrificed. None of them would do that. But along came one named Jesus, and we'll see here in the next chapter. I've come to do your will. You see, he did volunteer. He did lay down his life. He entered into the Holy of Holies in the heavenlies with his own blood. By means of his own blood. Where was that? At the cross, friends. That's why the cross is such a pivotal point for all of us in Christ. Because it's at the cross, as the hymn says, where we first see the light. The burden of our heart rolls away at the cross. So we have a different tent. And with Christ, there's a different sacrifice. It's a once for all sacrifice Christ himself is the sacrifice. What are the results? Eternal redemption. And 13 and 14 kind of does the how much more argument. Uh, Paul does this sometimes in Romans. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, if, if that sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. You remember how oftentimes a, a leper, if he was to be cleansed, he had to go to where? He had to go to the priest. Go check the priest. Priests will tell you whether or not you're clean. And there were certain ceremonial things that were done. They had to do in order to externally be deemed clean. And he's saying, the writer's saying, if the blood of bulls and goats does that, at that level of exterior, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, without spot, perfect, to God, His Father. How much more shall He cleanse your conscience? There it is. From dead works to serve the living God. Dead works. Year after year after year of doing all this stuff that at best, the only thing it could do is cleanse the exterior. And Christ comes on the scene and He breaks down the barrier of sin and He does what no one else can do offering us a cleansing from within. In fact, not only does he declare that is so, but he actually gives to us his promised Holy Spirit to abide within us. It 
So we see that this eternal redemption that's talked about in verse 12, it gets played out here. Verse 15, the last verse, for this reason, he's the mediator. We already saw he's a mediator back in chapter 8, verse 6. For this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant. By means of what? Death. How is it that he can be mediator of a new covenant? By means of death. And he's going to elaborate on that next week. This is just a teaser for next week. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Result clause here. That those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. The promise of the internal inheritance. You know, the more I read this, the more it settles into my soul. The more I'm reminded of how blessed I am in Christ. And I pray it would remind you of how blessed you are if you're here today in Christ. I also pray that if you're here today and you're not in Christ... That such a passage would encourage you greatly to be in Christ. That you too might inherit this eternal redemption that's been purchased for you by his blood. You see, only through Jesus Christ can this barrier of guilt be broken. Guilty consciences become cleansed. Through Christ's death at the cross. And I realize There's still a lot from an experiential standpoint, from maybe a a feeling coupled with an experience standpoint that you might be thinking, well, how does that actually work in my life? And how do I actually feel as though I have a, a cleansed conscience? We'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into the end of 9 and into 10. For now, suffice it to say that we need to continually wash ourselves in the objective truths of the gospel And at the center of the gospel, friends, is the cross. And so day after day, we need to make our way back to the cross and let his word wash over our minds, settle on our hearts, and we need to continually ask the questions. What are the implications of Christ shedding his blood at the cross? How does his death impact me today, right now? How is the blood of the new covenant affecting my life right now? And what are the implications of ignoring Christ's sacrifice while I still have breath. Please don't be fooled into thinking there are no implications if you ignore what Christ did at the cross. Roger Bannister is known for being the first man to break the barrier of the four-minute mile. An amazing accomplishment, for sure. But if you look at the men today whose names adorn the list of the fastest miles ever run. If you look at the top 20, we'll just go to the top 20. If you look at the top 20 list for the mile runners, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find that Roger Bannister's name is nowhere to be found on that list. In fact, the same month that he broke the record... August of 1954, an Australian outdid his time by less than a second. 
Today, it's not uncommon for world-class athletes to run the mile around 345. What's the point? Jesus went to the cross. He broke the barrier of sin when he died at Calvary. And through his shed blood, which ushered in the new covenant, we have been redeemed and forgiven. Our once guilty conscience has now been transformed into a cleansed conscience. That's true. It's his blood. 1 John 1, 7 says, it's his blood that cleanses us from all sin. No one else has ever broken the barrier of sin. No one else ever could. No one else has the power to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. No one else is qualified to serve as our great high priest in the heavenlies. No one else is deemed the son of God, able to serve as mediator between us and God. You're not going to see any other list of names surpassing Christ in these days ahead. Listen, it's been 2,000 years. There's still no name above his name. There is no other name. He's always going to be known as the one who broke the barrier of sin for man. Always, forever. His name stands. He's the spotless lamb. He's the great I am. He's our precious redeemer. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. May it be true for each one here today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful word of truth. We thank you, Lord, for what this first covenant represented. Lord, it was all pointing to a a glorious truth yet to come in Christ. And I pray that we would all see that. Your word says that the law is good, it's holy, it's right, served a righteous purpose for its time until the seed should come. That was Christ. And the law then now, even today, the law serves as a a tutor, escorting us, showing us the one who alone can save. Jesus is the name above all names. There are no names above his name. And we are thankful that we have such an almighty God that every day, no matter what our circumstance, we can turn to you in faith and trust that you are a good God and you are bringing about your good in our lives all the time, even when we can't see what that good might look like. Father, I pray today that you would wash us and remind us of your truths from the scripture. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of the power of the cross. Remind us that when you broke the barrier of sin, you also broke that barrier of a guilty conscience. Your son Jesus took away the guilt, took away the power of sin, took away the penalty of sin. He became the curse for us. He was our substitute. God, we thank you that you made your son to be the one who took our sin upon himself. He he literally exhausted your wrath, the wrath that was due us because of our sin. Your son took that upon himself in our place at the cross. 
And this one that we speak of in the passage of Scripture is the great high priest who's passed through the heavens. He is our forerunner. He is the one who has gone and entered before us. He's the one who said in John chapter 14 that he is building. And when he's done building, he's going to come back and take his people to be with him. This is a forerunner who's going to bring us with him that we might be where he also is. Oh, Lord, it's such good news. And Father, we live in this, this tension as we saw earlier. We live right now in the midst of dealing with sin. I pray we would reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to you in Christ Jesus. That we live in the midst of a world. We live in the midst of, of the evil one who holds sway in this world. We live in the midst of, of sinful flesh still hanging on desiring to do some of the things that we used to do. Lord, I pray that your spirit, who is greater than he who is in the world, would strengthen us for the work that's yet to be done here while we still have breath. And I pray we would look forward with great certainty to the time that's yet to come. We saw it in the scripture. It's maybe but a page or two in the scripture, but it's what's yet to come. There's new heavens and new earth time when there will be no sin, no more barriers. But until then, Lord, give us grace to be able to do what we need to do here and now, to live for your kingdom, to live with this treasure that you've given to us. And may we not only live that, but may we also, Lord, speak it to others and remember that we have a purpose and a mission here to be a witness to Jesus for all of our days that others might see Christ in us. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our great Redeemer and High Priest. Amen.